Hello, hello, welcome back to Loki's Library, and I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I'm reading through the enormous library books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about it. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, let me know what you think in the comments. Now, this week's book was one of my birthday shopping splurge gifts sort of grabbed as I ran through the true crime section of Barnes & Noble. And then when I was reconstructing my library database after an accidental deletion, <laughs> which was a lot of fun, uh, I realized I hadn't actually read any of the books in my true crime section for this channel. So here we are. I grabbed Don't Call It a Cult, The Shocking True Story of Keith Rainier and the Women of Nexium by Sarah Berman. And I also struggled a bit to find an accompanying cocktail. There just aren't a whole lot out there that include cults at their center. So, surprisingly enough, people are kind of hesitant to make cocktails that celebrate the darkness in life. I get it. Uh, but happily, Google finally ponied up this book, Mixology and Murder, Cocktails Inspired by Infamous Serial Killers, Cold Cases, Cults, and Other Disturbing Crime Stories by Kiera Sonderecker. Probably mispronounced your name. Sorry if I mispronounced your name, Kiara. So, happily, this book, and one of the nice things about Amazon is it lets you look and you know, it has that little look inside function if you're you know, browsing from your computer. And it actually has a cocktail specifically designed for Nexium. It's called the Clifton Park Club. So here we go. Clifton Park, incidentally, is where Nexium was centered during its heyday. And this cocktail is two ounces of gin, one egg white, three quarter ounces fresh lemon juice, a half ounce of raspberry syrup, and three fresh raspberries for garnish. So let's do this. The story of Nexium starts and ends with Keith Rainier. Final checkpoint. Answer this question. What is the most unattractive male first name in the English language? Keith. <laughs> so, Keith Rainier was born August 26, 1960 in Brooklyn, New York. And as near as I can tell, he was completely average as a human being. There was really nothing spectacular about him. I'm sure that that will upset some people who are diehard Keith Rainier fans. Yes, they still exist, much like Manson had followers up until his death and probably still has followers, even though he's dead now. Yes, Manson's dead. He died. Ooh, he was not happy with being average. Most, most people who are average are not. They try and find some way to distinguish themselves, and he distinguished himself by becoming an accomplished liar. Quite early on, he started inflating his sense of importance, claiming to be smarter than he was. And in the 1980s, he took an IQ test called the Mega Society Test, which was developed by Dr. Ronald K. Hofflin. This test was rapidly ignored by everybody. I mean everybody. Just nobody really took it seriously, mostly because it wasn't proctored. Um, it, it depended on the honor system. So, you know, it wasn't like Mensa where you'd have to go in and take a Mensa test and they're proctor it and see, yes, this is actually your IQ. They, you'd take the test and just swear honest pinky swear that those are my results and nobody helped me. And in reality, Rainier had an entire team of mostly women assisting him with this test. And so the, his claim and subsequent crowning as smartest man alive, trademark, was always kind of suspicious. And after being named as such in the Guinness Book of World Records, that archive tabled the designation. Uh, basically, even Guinness was like, this is, this is sus. We don't buy this. Uh, we could fight this dick over the designation or we can just retire the category. And so they just retired it in like 1990 or something like that. 
Yes, yes. Puffin Utters, were you coming in? Your cushion's over there, buddy. All of this was pre-interwebs, right? The 80s, 1980s, early 1990s. So his tale of being the smartest man alive, trademarked, stood and was used to sucker in followers over the next 30 years. All right. Starting with a, an actual genuine pyramid scheme. Now, the difference between a pyramid scheme and a multi-level marketing campaign is pretty minuscule. I mean, you, you have to tightly regulate that if you're a company to, to stay on the right side of the law because there are really tight allowances between the two. And there's a website, hold on here. According to the balancesmb.com, the difference between an um, MLM and a pyramid scheme is that an MLM will not require a large outlay of cash uh, to purchase startup inventory. Now they might require some, uh, which is perfectly allowable, but there won't be like thousands of thousands of dollars. And if you are requiring, if the company you're looking at is requiring thousands and thousands of dollars, then it's probably a pyramid scheme. And that's something to watch out for. Um, so that's the first key difference is it's not going to require a large amount of inventory. Now, even if they do require a lot of money for, for a purchase of inventory, it's not necessarily by itself proof of a pyramid scheme. If the company will buy back unsold inventory for at least 80% of what you paid, then it's flying into that MLM territory. So it's really a fine balancing act, right? Is there a demand for the product? If not, then it's probably a pyramid scheme. If there is more emphasis on recruiting new sellers over the product you're being that's being sold, then it's a pyramid scheme. All right, the product should be the selling point. If your primary task is to sign up others, then it's a pyramid scheme. And the last two largest red flags are: is the plan designed to make money by recruiting members over the sales of product? That's the big one. All right, if if you're told go in there and get more recruits, back away. That is not what you want to be a part of. So that's the first big red flag. The second one is, are you offered commissions for recruiting new members? If a big part of your income is going to be off of the recruitment of new members versus the sale of the product, then it's probably a pyramid scheme. I have to shake. So it is a fine line, but those lines are definitely in place by the time Rainier started his consumer byline in the 1990s. Um, well, excuse me, in 1990, which comparatively speaking was short-lived. I mean, it was shut down as a very obvious pyramid scheme by 1996 under a hail of state lawsuits claiming pyramid scheme and Rainier was ordered to pay fines to various state governments to reimburse the clients. That was shut down pretty quickly. Boom. It wasn't a complete waste of time though. In addition to the money that he got from all the clients as a result of this, he also met the core group of women who are going to help him to build his next project, Nexium, and his executive success program, ESP. Now included in this cast of characters are Pam Caffritz, Karen Unterreiner, and he was joined shortly after that by Nancy Salzman and her daughter Lauren Salzman. Now Rainier suckers all these women into believing that he is the smartest man alive, trademarked, and they immediately start recruiting more learners, offering discounts if each learner brings in more learners. Now this is of course very pyramid-like, but since no product was actually being sold, it was basically he was copywriting it as a training module, educational versus product. And I think that's how he slipped under the radar of being charged with the second pyramid scheme. Gradually, he begins to pull in some really big money. Some of it was a Hollywood connection, which builds up slowly. But the whales that he manages to land, now whales in 
in terms of a, a casino parlance, are the really big players who will drop tens of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars per visit to a casino. And the whales that next see in Mashland are Claire and Sarah Bronfman, two youngest daughters of Edgar Bronfman and heirs to the Seagram's fortune. Yeah, Seagram's whiskey. Billions of dollars. So these are billionaires he managed to pull in. And frankly, I'm a little disappointed the cocktail didn't include Seagram's whiskey. It might have been a logical choice, but we'll see how the gin tastes. Not bad. Tart. That was probably the lemon juice. Not bad though, it's good, good flavor. Mm. You can taste the raspberry. I like it. So Sarah and Claire Bronfman began pouring money down this dark well of Rainier's greed. And despite having convinced them that he was the smartest man alive, he began losing money in multiple bad investments. He, he um, it turns out the math that he invented, yeah, he, he said he invented his own form of math. Incidentally, not impossible, all right? I believe technically Harvard University is older than geometry? algebra there's some math that's actually younger than harvard so it's not impossible to invent new math but if other mathematicians have no idea what you're talking about it's probably a shit product just saying and his form of math did not work in the investment markets and he started losing money uh, to the tunes of millions and millions of dollars and because the Bronfman sisters were so convinced of his brilliance rather than suing him for the loss and asking for their money back, they'd sue the other investors. So, for example, they invested in a real estate deal to build mega mansions in the foothills of Los Angeles. And when that went bust, they sued the developer rather than Rainier, who directed them to invest in the project. So, keep it classy, ladies. By the early 2000s, Nixie was full bore. And they are recruiting. Now, HBO Max released a series on Nexium called The Vow, which goes into great detail on the journey of Sarah Edmondson, Anthony Aids, Mark Vicente, Bonnie Piesi, and basically an entire cast of survivors. But you know who is not included in The Vow? And if I had only watched that, I wouldn't know about it. Mariana, Daniela, and Camilla. We don't know their last names. Their last names were sealed by court order because they were so victimized by this group of people. Uh, Mariana, Danielle, and Camilla were three daughters of a family from the Mexican branch of Nexia. Now, I'm going to grant that I was only half paying attention to the vow while I was watching it because I was doing it while I was like working on other things. But the show focuses entirely on this inner circle who broke away. And I'll grant that what happened to them is beyond the pale. It's, it's truly horrific stuff. And, but the abuse suffered by these three sisters like literally goes against Geneva Conventions. <laughs> it's like war crime territory here. Um, let me back this up a bit. Now the entire Nexium Corps, including Nancy Salzman, Laura Salzman, Cam Frat, Pam Caffritz, Karen Unterreiner, Barbara Bushy, and Kristen Keefe. This was his really solid core. Eventually he was joined by Allison Mack. We're all insanely loyal to Rainier. And I don't know what the appeal was. I've seen pictures of him. He's kind of a short, frumpy-looking man. Maybe he has greater charisma in person. Maybe you just got to be a true believer. I don't know. But, and it seems like, especially for the women, I mean, the men too. I mean, he wasn't, as near as I could tell, bisexual. He wasn't making plays on any of the men. But the people who, around him fell into two categories. Those who were completely spellbound by him, and they stayed, and much havoc was wrought upon them whether they stayed or whether, if they left later, it was brought on them. And those who are not spellbound. Now, those who are not spellbound, some of them managed to escape without too much havoc. They just 
stop showing up and then you know they might eventually see somebody on the street and be like oh when are you coming back and that would be the end of it but if you started reaching those higher levels and those inner circles they destroyed your life if you tried to leave all right Bar Barbara Bushi tries to leave and well she I'm sorry she did leave and they hounded her with lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit I mean she she damn near went bankrupt and her life was pretty well destroyed all of these women who stayed around him including Bushi up until she decided to leave believed that he loved them and they all seemed weirdly okay with sharing his love with each other they they I mean at some point each of them were aware that they were not his one and only that that he was having sex with all of them but heaven help them if they went out and found another boyfriend and tried to have sex with somebody other than Keith that was just not allowed so his next thing fame begins as an executive program spread. They're able to open branches in Vancouver, Canada, which pulls in more actors through Sarah Edmondson. So that's how she comes involved. And that's where Allison Mack comes in, Christian Kroik, although I think Christian jumped out fairly early, Nikki Klein, if you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica, she was in that. And the branches in Mexico were opened up through Emiliano Salinas, who is the son of former Mexican President Carlos Salinas de Gotari. And it seems like part of the appeal of Nexium was this weird combination of bastardized philosophies that pulled on stoicism and objectivism. This broke my heart. <laughs> I was so outraged when the author reported that he pulled from Ayn Rand to, to sucker women in. I'm like, clearly none of you actually read and or comprehended Atlas Shrugged. I mean, he took what Rand expressed and convoluted it to suit him, his purpose, the rest of the world. And baby Jesus wept. <laughs> Seriously. By the time the Mexican branch of Nexium opened, these women would blindly do whatever Rainier wanted. And each of them basically assumed that someday they would be the one chosen to bear the child of the smartest man alive. <sighs> I mean, these were educated women, alright? Why was this seen as the be-all end-all to be chosen to be his broodmare? I mean, all of these women were smart, mostly postmodernist educated. And while I will agree that postmodernism has basically destroyed all joy in life, Rainier was like the opposite extreme. I mean, he still destroyed all joy in life, but he, he did it by so focusing on him, it didn't matter what anybody else wanted. And that incidentally is not what objectivism is, all right? Uh, from the Atlas Society website, objectivism is that there is no greater moral goal than achieving one's happiness. Okay, check. But one cannot achieve happiness by wish or whim. Okay. It requires rational respects for reality. And this is where he goes off the rails. All right. Because reality is whatever Keith said it was. All right. And these women, and he did a total big brother on him. He told them to ignore the evidence of their eyes. That wasn't what was happening. Reality is whatever he said it was. So back to Atlas.org. It requires rational respect for the facts of reality, including the facts about our human nature and needs. It requires living by objective principles, including moral integrity and respect for the rights of others. Rights of others, again, off the rails there. Objectivism is benevolent, holding that the universe is open to human achievement and happiness, and that each person has within him the ability to live rich, fulfilling, independent life. Seriously, if any of these ladies actually wanted to know about objectivism and Randian philosophy, they should have contacted the Atlas Society, which I'm sure has been around pre-interwebs. It's, it's been around pretty much since Atlas Shrugged was written.
For Rainier, the only truth behind objectivism was his happiness. The happiness of the women around him, his whims must be met, and reality was what he said it was, not what these women were actually going through. And he was excellent at gaslighting them. And he did so with extreme effect and extreme prejudice. As long as he was happy, everything was kosher. And these women were not happy. They were kept in absolute abeyance to Rainier's wishes and whims. This is not objectivism. He had no moral integrity. And he gaslit the out of these women. And this was just sick and twisted to read. Into this deluded, twisted, fucked up vision of Randian philosophy has dropped Mariana, Daniela, and Camilla. Starting with Daniela. Mariana was the eldest, but Daniela was arguably the most abused of the three because like all male children everywhere, they are the most desperate to prove themselves. I feel you, Daniela. Children, middle children of the world unite. Seriously, I, I get it, that need to prove yourself. I'm a middle child. I still bear the scars. Now, Daniela was incredibly smart. Like, for real smart, not fake smartish man alive smart. And while she had her sights on finishing out high school in Europe and going to college and, you know, being the smartest woman alive, after being introduced to the Nexium program, she decided to enhance her mind through learning with Keith. And since her parents were supporters of ESP, Executive Success Program in Nexium, they agreed and she was sent to Clifton Park, New York, where she did office work, data entry, and little bits of computer programming, which eventually morphed into being an amateur self-taught hacker for Nexium. She was set to hack Edgar Bronfman. See, Rainier, because of his own misdeeds, developed a healthy dose of paranoia that people were out to get him. And I don't think they were. I mean, some maybe, but Bronfman wasn't one of them. He just, he was concerned for his daughters, but mostly he just wanted them to be happy. But he still, you know, set her to hack Bronfman, and she, ha she, she finally managed it with the help of Claire. Claire went in and, and downloaded the virus on his computer and just, 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 ooh, this guy, how, how, why? Why, ladies? I don't get it. Maybe he had to be there. The most that anybody was out to get him, so going back to his paranoia, was famed cult specialist Rick Allen Ross, who was called in to try and pull someone out of Nexium. Now Ross failed in his effort because the person, and I don't remember his name, but it is in the book, called uh, Nancy Salzman, who kept him on the phone and got him out of there. And so, I mean, that's not alarming. If you're not a cult, why do you care what people are saying, what, what they're talking to you? But there it is. Um, he failed, so Ross failed, but he became public enemy number one to Nexium crew, who started a concentrated campaign of harassment against Ross. And I believe that that campaign spanned a decade and probably would have bankrupted him, except that his legal services were donated by the, the firm that represented him. They were like, yeah, this guy's a wackadoo. We'll take care of this for you. Don't worry about it. So back to Daniela. Like... All very young women, I believe she was 16 when she was delivered to the tender mercies of Clifton Park, she wanted to fall in love because that's normal biology, right? And while I don't think she explicitly set her eyes on Keith, she saw him more as a mentor. He certainly had his eyes on her and began grooming her quite early. Now, as to what was reported by Daniela, and she certainly has no reason to lie on this matter, uh, he, he didn't actually move on her until she was 18, so that was disgusting. One can certainly argue that she wasn't in a position to give consent because she had been groomed and brainwashed up till, you know, for two years prior to, but she was 18 when he um, 
had her join his harem on her 18th birthday. But he did not advise her that she was only one of many. She figured it out on her own. And because the vast majority of women are not happy only being one of many, preferring instead to be someone's one and only, several years later she fell in love with another member of Nixium. And Rainier lost his shit. He badgered her endlessly about her lack of morals and breaking her promises to him. What promises, I don't know. Because he's a piece of shit. And how could she hurt him? And now she wasn't pure because she had kissed another man. Didn't even have sex with the guy. She kissed him. And that made her, her unpure and not good enough for Rainier. And that was enough for this scarlet letter to be blazoned across her soul to the rest of Rainier's harem, and he spent several years psychologically torturing her, culminating in 2010 when she was placed in a room to think about what she had done. And there was nothing in this room beside the bed, literally. There were no books, there was no TV, no computer. She was given a pad of paper, um, which she journaled in for a bit until they took that away from her because she wasn't thinking hard enough about what she had done. And uh, she, she spent two years in that room and was denied all human contact for two years. That, uh, that is definitely a violation of Geneva Conventions. That's, that's criminal psychological torture. And what's particularly pernicious about this is the door wasn't locked. She, she could technically leave at any time. And I genuinely think that these little things were his way of trying to stay ahead of any legal problems later. Oh no, she wasn't locked in. She could leave at any time. Except that she'd been told that if she left that room, she'd be sent back to Mexico with nothing. Her family would cut her off. She would have nothing. And um, ultimately, she, she, I believe she tried to commit suicide at least once before deciding that uh, it would be better to be free with nothing than to remain in this cage where she didn't even know what she had done wrong so um, she did leave the room and and walked to the volleyball court where Rainier was playing a game and he saw her and at that point she was corralled by the harem I don't remember if it was Allison Max or Kristen Keefe but one, one of the inner circle rounded her up and put her in a car and drove her to the Mexican border from New York with her father in the car isn't that a nice touch and um, Daniela was cast out. And the last thing her father said to her was, try and figure out how to make this right and come back to us. Isn't that I don't think I can blame her father because he was just as mind-bent and mind-bent as, as Keith. And he didn't know just how bad the torture had gotten. Because she couldn't talk to him. She was denied even that. And it's just... At one point, her mother tried to intervene. And so they... they Put her mother in a room by herself so that she could get an idea of what Daniela was going through. Only the mother's room, she had TV, she was allowed to have visitors, so it just, just, this guy, this piece of shit. Ugh. So Daniela was introduced to Nexium in 2002. She left in 2012. She lost a decade of her life to Rainier. She was forced to have at least one abortion by Nexium Fixers because Rainier was a professed celibate. So it would not do for Rainier, this smartest man alive, this celibate, this godlike man, to be known to have fathered a child on someone who at the time was an illegal immigrant because her visa expired several years before. 
and uh, they never renewed it for her. That was one of the uh, issues they kept over her head to keep her compliant is that she could be deported at any time because she wasn't there legally. And in the intervening decade, her two sisters had joined her in Clifton Park, and I believe both of them would go on to become pregnant by Rainier. Um, I think Mariana is the one who delivered one of his two children successfully. I don't think Camilla was one of them, but Camilla, the youngest, was only 15 when Rainier began having sex with her. She was forced into at least one abortion. I mean, Rainier couldn't ruin his public image by with a passel of children, especially not ones who were conceived on minor children themselves. The other child that Rainier fathered was on Kristen Keefe, who managed to hide her pregnancy until an unexpected premature delivery ensured the child's safety. Once the child was born, it was there. Um, but even then, he was not acknowledged by the community as Rainier's son. It was just... He wasn't even acknowledged to be Keefe's son. It was basically said to be the child of a Nexium couple who had died unexpectedly. And so isn't that nice of, of the Clifton Park crowd to bring this child in and raise it as their, as their collective adoptive child. And after some years of this, Keefe, having finally recognized the evil that is Keefe, bolted into the witness protection program. She, she eventually reconnected with Barbara Boucher. Now I understand Keefe, as one of Rainier's premier fixers, had been the key harasser against Boucher, the one who kept filing the lawsuits and pulling all the sins. So Boucher at first was like, hmm, I don't know, Keefe's reaching out to me, I don't know if I can trust this. She was relieved to find it was not a trap. Keefe genuinely had left, and between the two of them, they started trying to figure out how can we bring this down, how can we stop this? Now, back in Clifton Park, things had gotten even darker. Uh, Camilla was rebelling, Mariana's rebelling, I mean Camilla's trying to find love outside of Keith and how dare she, how dare she betray him the way Daniela did, Daniela's gone, and Rainier starts to think, I'm guessing, I don't know what he actually thought, but this is probably a pretty consistent guess given everything we know about this man, he starts to think, F these bitches, I'm gonna make it so they can't leave, because that's what a healthy functioning adult does. And he decides Nixium isn't nearly cult-like enough. He needs these women around him to go into super-secret stealth mode, like Charlie Manson levels of loyalty. They gotta swear a lifelong fealty to their master, and their master is Rainier. So he had several that were sworn directly to him. Allison Mack and Lauren Salzman were among those. Then he sent those out to recruit others. So they would go out, contact other Nexium women who Rainier was interested in, or... Maybe he didn't specifically say, recruit her, recruit her, but they definitely recruited with an eye towards pleasing Vanguard. Oh yeah, that was his name in Nexium. He was, he was Vanguard. <laughs> the, oh, this is the other fun thing. The master, and yes, yes, they were all called master to their down, their downstream. So Allison Max was, Mac was a master. Lauren Salzman was master would require two things from the slave. Isn't that fun, right? But it totally doesn't mean what we think master and slave means. I said, why would you ever seed your own thought, your own ability to think, Jesus Christ? So the first thing he required was collateral. Even if they had to make it up, the master required a deep, dark secret that would destroy the slave if it ever got out. Um, one of the other key witnesses against Rainier, uh, first name Nicole, last name sealed by court order. 
uh, lied for her collateral. She said that her father had molested her. Uh, her father had never molested her, just full disclaimer here. Um, but the lie itself would be enough to destroy her. So that collateral was acceptable. N naked pictures were almost always included in the collateral. And the second thing they had to do was promise to do whatever their master told them to do. Um, a lot of that telling included submitting to forced sexual acts, sometimes with Rainier, sometimes with other people, and extremely calorie-restrictive diets, like um, 300 to 500 calories per day. Remember what we learned last week about famine conditions? And when starvation sets in, it follows a very set course. So this is a direct quote from the book. She, she describes it very well. In the first phase, the body consumes its stores of glucose. Feelings of extreme hunger set in, along with constant thoughts of food. In the second phase, which can last for several weeks, the body begins to consume its own fats, and the organism weakens drastically. In the third phase, the body devours its own proteins, cannibalizing tissues and muscles. Eventually, the skin becomes thin, the eyes become distended, the legs and belly swollen as extreme imbalances lead the body to retain water. Yeah. Rainier liked his women too hungry to argue and too weak to fight back. So extremely calorie-restrictive diets were his norm. The other fun thing about extreme calorie restrictions is you tend to go off your period, so it kind of takes care of birth control for him. You know, if you're not menstruating, you can't get pregnant. So, and the ultimate shit thing, the thing that the vow was based upon, is a literal brand. He branded these women like cattle. Fun, right? Good times. I've had a tattoo, all right? I have multiple tattoos. I wouldn't touch brand for anything all right nothing hurts like burned flesh and he burned them and he for some reason seemed to think because he had all of this filmed that having the woman ask to be branded please master brand me would negate his own liability in some fashion like he wouldn't be held accountable if they asked for it the good news is this did not work for Rainier now not too long after Sarah Edmondson was branded she kind of woke up and was like hmm this ain't working, this is bad, and uh, she left. She took all the risks along with her husband, Anthony Ames, uh, Mark Vicente, and Mark's wife, Bonnie Piesi. They, all four of them, jumped ship, along with Barbara Boucher, and they uh, went to the FBI. And the FBI began working with Mexican authorities and arrested Rainier in Mexico in March of 2018, along with uh, some members of his inner circle, which included, I believe, both Salzman, Clara Bronfman, and um, Allison Mack. Uh, I, I believe Sarah, yeah, Sarah Bronfman, I believe, had jumped ship by that point. She had, you know, gone out and found her own guy to marry. I don't, I think she was still to some level involved with Nexium, but certainly not to the level Claire was. Mack, I remembered. I remembered seeing that she had been arrested and that she ultimately pled guilty to trafficking. I remember seeing the headline and thinking, well, I mean, that's, that's Hollywood, right? Bunch of rapist, child molesting weirdos down there. And while I have certainly seen very little in the wake of the Me Too movement and following Rose McCowan's book that I reviewed last year that would change my mind on that, this was not that. Mac was one of the key figures in holding Mariana, Daniela, and Camilla hostage and ensuring that they couldn't leave. Mac helped lure in lure victims to Rainier's sex slave cult, which was called Dominus, Do, uh, Dos, Dominus Obsequious Sororium, which roughly translates as master over slave women. I, I have no pity for Mac, and I feel like she probably should serve more jail time than what she was sentenced to. Nancy Salzman, 
pled guilty in March of 2019, was sentenced to three and a half years in prison. Lauren Salzman pled guilty on March 25th of 2019, about two weeks after her mother did, but Lauren testified against Rainier. Um, she was present when he was arrested and was thoroughly unimpressed with how the smartest man alive handled his arrest, and so she turned state's evidence on his RICO charges, and she was ultimately sentenced to five years probation and 300 hours of community service. Claire Bronfman went all in, set, it up, set up a $14 million trust to cover Rainier's legal defense, and was ultimately sentenced to seven years in prison, and Allison Mack was sentenced to three years in prison. She's probably out now actually 2019 yeah she might be out now and I hope she never works again seriously he ruined your life for this asshole and you deserve every sense of uh, every ounce of misery that comes with that now the other two ladies involved in in his inner circle because we got Keith left and probably testified Boucher certainly left and probably testified Pam Caffritz died of cancer well before Nexium's fall, but not nearly soon enough. She was the fixer who arranged the abortions for Rainier's victims. Karen Unterreiner, I'm I'm not sure what she was sentenced to. I, I It was probably in the book, but I don't remember specifically what happened to her. I did look it up on the interwebs, and they indicate that she testified for the prosecution and likely avoided serious trouble as a result. And Keith was found guilty of sexual exploitation of a child, possession of child pornography in relation to Camilla, remember she was only 15, sex trafficking and attempted sex trafficking, identity theft, trafficking for labor and services, forced labor, conspiracy to alter records for use in an official proceeding, sex trafficking conspiracy, forced labor conspiracy, racketeering conspiracy, and wire fraud conspiracy. He was sentenced to 120 years in prison in order to pay $1.75 million in fines, which probably came out of that $14 million trust that Claire Bronfman set up for him. And I hope some of that money goes to Mariana, Daniela, and Camilla. Seriously. Um, this book was outstandingly written. It pulls you right in and it moves the narrative along in a fast, logical pace. It kind of reveals, no, it definitely reveals the horrors of what happened but with absolute empathy for the victims while allowing their voices to be heard. Uh, it was really well done. It made me really glad that I was not raised in New York, LA, or Seattle because I am exactly the sort of person who might have been pulled into this in the early 2000s. I, I was still working on finding myself. I am very glad that I came to objectivism and stoicism in my own time rather than having Rainier's pseudo-philosophical bullshit spoon-fed me at the cost of $3,000 per module. Like, seriously, Atlas Society website is free. The Daily Stoic is free. I'll include links to both of those in the description, alright? And libraries. Hell, I bought my copy of Meditations at a library sale for 50 cents. So you can learn about philosophy on your own. You don't actually need somebody like Rainier to explain to you what they think it means. Read it for yourself and uh, reach your own conclusions. Also, this book introduced me to Rick Ross, who wrote the book on cults. Wish I'd have found that one before I found cultish. Seriously. I purchased his book. I'm not sure when I will get it on the schedule, but I'll try and do it sooner rather than later because I find cults fascinating, as fascinating as authoritarianism. And seriously, the two are basically the same thing though, right? I mean, authoritarianism is when the governments do it, but Cults are kind of authoritarianism on small scale. So you can kind of see what's going on there. 
Like, I want to know what leads people to cede their own rational thought to someone else. And Rand would not approve. And that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, do let me know what you think in the comments, and I will see you guys next week. Uh, this cocktail, incidentally, I have a feeling I'll be making up a lot more of these. I'm not sure if I'll do it on this channel because I don't want to run afoul of like copyright laws. One I can probably get away with, but more than that is, um, well, I don't want to give it away. All right. This was really good. Try it out. I'll include a link to that one as well, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye.